Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10am service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us. And check out our website at mpbc.org.au. John 18 verse 1 When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus is of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 24. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace, because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. John chapter 18, verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. 
Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This reading comes from John chapter 19. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write, the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. The death of Jesus. Later, knowing that everything had now finished so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The burial of Jesus. Later, Jesus of oh, sorry, the burial of Jesus. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jew Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. From that scripture passage, we are reminded of the harshness and inequity that Jesus was dealt in his last days of life on this earth the brutality of the cross, and the anger and fear of people of that time, how they weren't ready to have their king walk amongst them. Let us now pray. Heavenly Father, we pray on this special but sombre day in our Christian calendar that your sacrifice is truly understood and appreciated by all of humanity who you came to save. As we close our eyes, may we picture 
this time, thousands of years ago, when you were here amongst us, sharing your wisdom, your grace, showing us how to live in accordance with your will. While here on this earth, you shared inspiring and informative stories. You showed exceptional compassion and love. And you exemplified humbleness and a servant nature to all whom came in contact with you. Yet despite all of this, Lord, we were still not able to accept you as our king. Lord, we ask that you forgive us as we are flawed human beings and you are almighty God. You paid the ultimate price for our sin by allowing your son to die on the cross in our place. Let us not trivialise this gift of salvation that you offer. Let us immerse ourselves truly in that day thousands of years ago when your son Jesus died alone on the cross. Let us be truly thankful that you loved us so much that you did this for us. We live in times now that are not that different to when you were here. We are scared and fearful like we were then. We need you, Lord, as much now as we did then. Let us draw strength from this day as you intended, as we know that this day is not the end of the story, but the basis for a wonderful beginning. Some people on this earth right now are experiencing the same darkness and pain of the time when you were here. These are not easy times either. These are times of sickness, isolation and confusion. A time where there are no answers to major health queries and a time where our lives need to change for the better. We can do all of this, Lord, with you your guidance, your love and your grace. This is also a time, Lord, of opportunity as humanity seeks answers to questions about faith and creation. Keep us strong, Lord, so we can step into those opportunities and tell others of your love. Thank you for your gift of salvation and for the light you shine every day in every corner of our life. We pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks, Nicole, for that prayer. And also to Natalie, Jeremy and Wendy for those Bible readings. And to Beck and Nathan for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, my, me my message is titled, The Cross is Proof of God's Love for Us. And I want to begin by reading from uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Many Australians um, are quite familiar with the story of Simpson and his donkey. It's actually one of the key stories or key, uh, key stories that are told each year on Anzac Day. And it's about an Australian soldier. His name is 
uh, John Simpson Kirkpatrick, and he was actually a stretcher bearer uh, in the First World War in the Gallipoli campaign. Simpson landed in Anzac Cove on the 25th of April 1915, and he used his donkey to carry wounded soldiers to the beach so that they could receive further treatment. Simpson did his job bravely, and often he did this while bullets and shells were exploding all around him. And uh, he attended many wounded soldiers from Australia and from New Zealand. And he did this for three and a half weeks before he was killed by machine gun fire. Today, Simpson is immortalised uh, and praised as someone who gave his life for others. Simpson was indeed a very brave soldier who died trying to save his mates who were wounded. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that it's actually rare to find someone like Simpson, someone who will die for a good person, someone who will die for their mates. But he goes on to say that it's just about impossible to find anyone who will die for their enemy or for a bad person. But this is what God did on the cross through Jesus. And so if you're looking for proof of of God's love for humanity, if you actually wonder about the goodness of God, then you should not look past the cross of Christ because Paul says that, it is in, that in the cross of Christ we can see the extreme love of God expressed most profoundly because God dies not just to save his mates but for, but for those who have risen up with fists clenched Hand, with, with, with uh, clenched fist hands in rebellion against God. The author Rita Snowden tells of another incident in the First World War in which a soldier risked his life for seemingly a w- worthless individual. Uh, this, is, this story actually comes from uh, T.E. Lawrence, and many of you might know him also as, by his other name, which is Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence was an archaeologist and he was also a great linguist and he was working in the Middle East prior to the First World War. And when war broke out, Lawrence joined uh, the British Army to help in in their Middle East campaign. He was fluent in Arabic and he began to work with Arabs in that region to, to, to sort of start or ferment this sort of revolt against the Turkish who... Uh, were the enemies in the First World War, but who controlled that whole region. In 1915, Snowden says that Lawrence was one of the, on one of his journeys across the desert uh, with, a, with a group of Arabs on camels. And, he's, and she says things were desperate. Their food was almost finished. Their water was down to the last drop. The Arabs and Lawrence all had their heads covered Uh, shielding their faces from this intense storm, this intense sandstorm of wind, burning hot, stinging sand. Suddenly, someone said, Where is Yasmin? Another said, Who is Yasmin? A third answered, That yellow-faced man from Man, the one who killed the Turkish tax collector and then fled to the desert. The first Arab said, Look, Yasmin's camel has no rider on it. A second man said, maybe someone shot him on the march. 
A third said, he wasn't strong in the head though. Maybe he's gone crazy and wandered off in search of a mirage, searching for some sort of water in a mirage. Then the first Arab man said, what does it matter? Yasmin was not even worth 10 pence. Lawrence, Lawrence's Arab companions then hunched themselves back over their camels and rode on without giving Yasmin another thought. But T.E. Lawrence turned around and he rode back to where he'd come from. He rode back alone in the blazing heat, alone in the sandstorm as the sand blew all around him. He rode back at the risk to his own life. And after an hour and a half's ride, he saw something lying on the sand. It was Yasmin. He was blind and mad with the heat and thirst, being murdered by the desert. Lawrence lifted him up onto his camel and gave him some, some of the last drops of precious water that he had and then slowly plodded back to catch up with his Arab companions. And when he came upon them, the Arabs looked around in amazement. Here is Yasmin, they said. Yasmin, who is not even worth 10 pence, is saved by Lawrence, our Lord, at the risk of his own life. It is Lawrence's story of saving Yasmin, a seemingly worthless individual, and not Simpson's story of saving his mates that is at the heart of the Easter story. Because Easter is about God, like Lawrence, riding back to save us and rescuing us when we don't deserve it. In the verses that I read earlier from Romans 5, Paul is not saying that some people deserve mercy while others don't. And he's also not saying there are some people who need saving because they're awful, while others who are good don't need saving. In Romans 3.23, Paul actually says that all of us are in actual fact enemies of God. Because all of us have sinned, there is not one of us who has done the right thing. You don't need a theology, in deg a theology degree to recognise and understand that. Just a simple reflection on your own experience of life should be enough to convince you of who you really are. But if you need further proof that none of us are essentially good, then let's take a look at Paul's own life. Paul is, is an apostle of God. But before that, he was an exemplary Jew, circumcised, the Bible tells us, on the eighth day. He was from the right tribe, the right side of the tracks, someone who knew and kept all the religious laws. He was someone who you would think would know how to please God. With all the study that he'd done, you, you would think he understood those, the, the right path and, and how, to, how to behave. Yet in Romans chapter 7, he says that he's actually troubled by his own nature. He says, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do instead. This, my friends, is a common problem for each of us. And that is why God rode back, like Lawrence, to rescue us. It's why Jesus was crucified for us. Not because we're good enough to save, because we're not. 
but it is because of his great love. What also stands out from that passage in Romans 5 is that the rescue rescue plan, the cross, was initiated by God and not by us. The, the The cross demonstrates that God is not indifferent to us and to our needs. God's arm didn't need to be sort of twisted for him to help us. God knows that we're powerless to do anything about our situation. God knows that we can't save ourselves and that we are lost. We're off course. And like Yasmin, the lost Arab, we're actually unable to lift ourselves up and find our way back home. The theme of God taking the initiative is actually a plot in many parables that Jesus tells. And what we see in Jesus' parables, though, in, in parables like the lost coin, is the lost, that lost coins don't seek and find themselves, and lost sheep don't walk back to their corral, and lost sons don't welcome themselves back into their families that they've been rejected, that, that, that they have rejected. In all of these stories of Jesus, someone takes the initiative to actually seek and find and welcome that which is lost. Rembrandt uh, is one of the most famous Dutch painters of the 17th century. He's actually famous or known for painting religious scenes and his ability to depict the deep emotions of people in biblical scenes is quite phenomenal. He is also famous for painting himself into different religious scenes. In fact, in this painting that's on, the, on, the, uh, on your screen now, Raising of the Cross, Rembrandt actually paints himself twice into this scene. First, he appears as one of the men lifting up the cross. Perhaps you can see that man at the bottom there. He's wearing a blue beret. By painting himself as one of the central figures lifting up the cross, Rembrandt is telling us, and is also telling himself, that he understands his own lostness. And that Christ's death was not something that was actually disconnected from him. And in many ways, it's something that he feels responsible for. That's why he painted himself there. You see, Rembrandt was an extraordinary painter with great fame, but he was also a flawed character who struggled with pride, lust and and money throughout his whole life. He painted uh, the raising of the cross at the beginning of his career in 1633, before things really started to spiral out of control in his life. And if you look closely, you can see that Rembrandt has painted himself also a second time. This time he appears as the turban-headed man behind the cross, seated at a distance on a horse. And and he seems, seems to be just staring past the cross. And he seems to be staring straight at us. It's like he's asking us the question, if we can see ourselves in that scene as well. And if we can, and if we can uh, see that we have any responsibility as well in the death of Christ. If we can see our own lostness 
And can we consider what God has done to rescue us? But it's actually another painting of Rembrandt's. The prodigal son that best portrays Rembrandt's own understanding of God being the one who takes initiative to seek and save the lost and which shows that God puts no preconditions on welcoming the lost back to him. In, uh, it is in the story of the prodigal son and also Rembrandt's uh, depiction of the prodigal son returning that is on the screen now of, of being welcomed back by his father that actually Rembrandt shows most clearly his understanding of his own brokenness and his own poverty. You see, he paints himself into this scene again. He's kneeling before his father, pressing his face against his chest. The once so self-confident, venerated artist has come to a painful realisation that all the glory that he gathered for himself proved vain glory. And instead of fine clothes, he, he wears a worn and battered, battered tunic over his emaciated body and he's wearing worn and useless sandals on his feet. This picture is actually hung, uh, not, not the original, uh, a copy of it, a huge, massive copy of it at, is actually hung at Whitley College. And uh, it, if you get a chance to go to Whitley after the lockdown is finished and spend a few minutes just looking at that painting, it is such a valuable painting to just contemplate. And you can see a lot of the details that Rembrandt has brought out in it. But it is the father who shines most in the prodigal son painting. In many ways, we could rename, or this painting could be renamed, uh, the welcome of the compassionate father instead of the return of the lost son. Henri Nguyen says that every detail of the father shows the father's love and compassion, his facial expression, his posture, the colour of his dress, and most of all, the this, this still gesture of his hands. They all speak of the divine love for humanity that existed from the beginning and that will be forevermore. Like the father in the story, God does not put any preconditions on us before he welcomes us back. That is what Paul is saying here again in Romans 5.8 when he writes that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God doesn't wait for us to get our act together before he loves us or wait for us to get rid of all the junk in our life before he initiates or initiated that rescue plan. This is because God knows that we could never ever meet even the most basic of preconditions to somehow make ourselves even a little bit more worthy of being welcomed, let alone immensely loved. Paul uses words like powerless and still sinners to express our condition when God initiated his rescue plan. We're all like Yasmin. We're all like Rembrandt. We're all like the prodigal son. Further, Paul says that God has no expectation that we can make our way back to God. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul says, that, says this. He says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, 
but considers them foolish and cannot, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. We don't have in ourselves the ability to find our way back. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. He ran to the boy, clasped him in his arms and kissed him. Then ordering a great celebration, he says, this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is now found. The question then this morning that I want to ask that I think we need to consider is this. God has demonstrated his great love for us by Jesus dying for us. And so what is our response to that love? God has taken the initiative. Are you willing to respond? The question is not, how do I find God? But how am I to let myself be found by God today? The question is also, well, the question is not, how am I to know God? Rather, it is, how am I to let myself be known by Him? And finally, it is not, how am I to love God? But rather, how am I to let myself be loved by God? The cross is God's movement towards us. The cross is a concrete expression of what Jesus is telling us in the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost sons. God is a woman who sweeps and seeks until the coin is found. God is a shepherd who goes looking for his sheep. God is the father who watches and waits for his children to return and then pleads with them, begs them to come home. Ignoring his own dignity, running to meet us, paying no attention to their apologies, but instead bringing us to a banquet table which he is hosting for us. Friends, the cross of Christ is the proof of God's love. It is God himself bearing the weight of our sin and shame. Let us embrace it today. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that on the cross you carried the weight. It's a heavy weight. We see in that picture of Rembrandt, the raising of the cross, that that cross was heavy, bore all our sins. Lord, we thank you that we don't bear that. We can't bear it, but we thank you that you have paid that price, that you have carried that weight and that, you've, that you deal with all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our sin on that day 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Amen.